Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, it's Barbenheimer, baby. This might be the best double feature we've done on this show in like a hundred episodes. Andy, it's been an incredible weekend at the movies. Yeah, it really has. The last time I think I was this excited for a weekend is when we saw The Lighthouse and Parasite uh, in the same weekend. I was going to say, Lighthouse and Parasite, I think, was our other like incredible double feature. Yes, uh, Barbie is out in theaters. The new feature from Greta Gerwig is smashing box office records. Incredible numbers. Even I didn't see it coming. And, and we have our fingers on the pulse of cinema here at Off Script. We're also going to talk about Oppenheimer. The new Christopher Nolan movie is out. Incredible run at the movies. Both overperforming. Both have a bunch of memes. And here to join us to talk about it is uh, a special guest. Andy, who do we have? We have uh, my significant other and friend of the show, Crystal, has joined us today. Welcome, Hello. Crystal. <laughs> Yay! Hi. Uh, Crystal, why are you here to talk with us? Uh, I'm going to guess it's Barbie-related. Because, frankly, I was a little nervous we were going to end up doing this, and it'd just be, it'd just be Andy and I, just a couple of bros. So I'm, I'm glad you're here. Yeah, you need that female take on Barbie, for sure. <laughs> yeah, we absolutely I do. I was really worried about that. I realized over the weekend, I was like, we should probably get a female perspective on this this movie, not just be two dudes talking about it. It's true. Wouldn't be the first time we've stumbled headlong into something we don't really know. Uh, we're also going to talk about the writer's strike and actor's strike. That's a whole thing going on. Oh, my God. It's moving movie dates around. Movies you're not even thinking of are getting moved around later in the calendar because of the stuff. And it seems like it may only uh, get worse. Uh, before we get to all that, though, we got to talk about the news. Uh, our first story this week uh, out of AMC theaters. Turns out uh, this exciting variable pricing plan they had for better seats did not work, and AMC will not be charging more for specific nice seats at the movies. This was something we reported on back in February originally when AMC announced that they were going to start charging by essentially zone in the theater to try to upsell front row seats. Front row seats would be cheap, and then as you move back in the theater, it gets a little more expensive from like $11 to $13 a ticket. And then if you're sitting in that like prime middle zone in a theater, right, where the sound's great and the screen looks the best, you're paying the most at like $15 a ticket. Uh, they've tested this. They said it doesn't work. People don't go for it and most importantly they don't upsell front row seats uh there they do have an interesting kind of new option though that they claim they're going to be exploring uh in their sightline program andy what do you know about this oh oh god i forgot to say by the way uh, this was all sent to us uh by friend of the show jamal uh, at mapstone park on twitter he's an amazing follow quality content all around go check him out jamal thanks for sending this in uh andy what do you know about this Right. We we knew that AMC was was going to try and uh yeah, just kind of price things like you would at a ballpark or a concert where better seats cost more. Uh but we felt that that people would just avoid those seats and they're definitely not want to sit in, in in the front. And they already kind of have that with uh like if they have those D box seats, those are kind of in prime location and much more expensive. They do have to sell you on, on the you know, the movement uh of it all. So this isn't surprising that no one went for this. It's funny, um, one, out of the two movies we saw this weekend, of course, one of them, Oppenheimer, uh, we went and saw that in IMAX, big IMAX. I'm excited to talk about it uh, towards the end of the show. Uh, but when we saw it, like the front row, it was almost almost completely sold out show, except for the front row, like where, where there's just like a cavalcade of seats that haven't been sold. And, and like looking at its IMAX run for the next two weeks, this seems to be the case everywhere. People really want to see these big movies, right? 
they don't want to be sitting in the front. They just don't. Like, it is It is not the way to do it. People would rather come back for another showtime than sit in the front row. Uh, the thing AMC is trying to do to solve this, of course, is change, change pricing and make more money. But reportedly, what they say they're going to do uh, following the failure of this program is uh, new seats in the front, uh, large, comfortable, lounge-style seating areas that allow guests to lay all the way back and relax. Uh, the angle of seats will make it more enjoyable to watch movies from these front row seats closer to the screen not a bad alternative better seats in the front that lay all the way back so you can like chill and maybe take a nap up there like <laughs> not a bad idea what do you think andy uh it could be effective because i feel it's not just the very front row it's like those front three rows no one sits there no one wants to sit there they're constantly empty um unless it's like the biggest movie ever so and you would probably have to take out a couple of those rows. You could maybe only have one or two of the these la- really laid-back lounge seats. Uh, but I think that would probably be better than what, what they have now, which is like no one sits there. It's totally empty. Yeah, me too. Uh, the only thing I'm worried about is like somebody snoring in, like halfway through my movie, right? Like some guy falls asleep up front and then you got to throw popcorn at him or something. I don't know. But either way, like... Not a bad idea. That that's that's an offer I think people can get behind. That make me that may make me go to an AMC more than like charging me more just to sit somewhere different in the theater. That was a bonkers idea. I'm glad it didn't work. Uh, our next story: uh, Dune Two might be moving to 2024, which would be a big bummer for sci-fi fans. But that's not the only feature uh, moving around. Warner Brothers has been moving and shifting and considering moving dates due to the writer strike for a handful of small films. Nothing too big yet. I think Dune is the big one. Uh, but they got to start moving things around because they don't have content or they're not going to have content <laughs> because of the strikes. Andy, what do you know about this? Well, it's not so much that they don't have content is that they don't have promotion. You know, a lot of these, the marketing campaigns for a lot of these big movies, they start two months in advance. So for Dune, that means uh, in late August, September, they're going to want to start rolling out uh, the marketing campaigns. And uh, while the actors and writers are on strike, you can't have any of those actors do any film promotion. They can't do interviews. You can't. Uh, promote the show in any way can they can't do a red carpet uh so the studios are really worried about not having marketing campaigns for these big expensive movies and so they're pushing thinking of pushing them none of the big ones have been pushed yet but we already have some casualties uh luca guadagnino's challenger starring zendaya the tennis drama supposed to come out in september and premiere at the venice film festival it's been pushed to 2024 uh yorgos lanthimos is uh, Poor Things was also supposed to come out in September, also getting pushed to December, so it's not too bad, but um, we're starting to see a trickle of small films being pushed, and if it could be a domino effect, and we, we could see some of these bigger ones, and if Dune 2 gets pushed, I'm going to lose it. I'm going <laughs> to totally riot. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a big bummer, I, I think, for people who are paying attention uh, to stuff that's coming out and are anticipating uh, things like Dune uh, or uh, Challengers, right? Luca Guadagnino's new feature getting pushed. Uh, that's a big bummer. I was kind of looking forward to what he was doing after Bones and All, but I guess now I'll have to wait. Um <laughs> I don't know how far the strikes are going to go. I don't think anybody does. I, I'm genuinely surprised that there seems to have been no real buckling. Uh, we'll talk about this more in our middle segment, Death of Cinema. That's when we're talking kind of more about the strikes. But for what it's worth, uh, the Actors Guild has been striking for like two weeks. Uh, the Writers Guild has been striking for like two months. And like we still don't really have movement. And studios seem to think, you know what? It's still worth taking the L and just making a little less money and shifting around our financial calendar than just like bowing to demands. I Again, we'll talk about it more in the middle here, but like it's a, it's a wild strategy, man. <laughs> 
it's 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 something else. I guess they seem to think they have a whole lot of wiggle room. Um, but this is the, the the beginning of what I would think will likely be a domino effect if something doesn't change. Like, yeah, it starts with little things moving, and then before you know it, like big studio moves are happening, and and nobody really has a plan. Uh, not not a clean not a clean strategy, in my opinion. Yeah, if you if one of these big movies mo- moves like Dune or the Marvels. Any of these big ones, it could be like you said, a domino effect. And I'm, you know, we have like the the big Napoleon biopic, uh, Scorsese's stuff, Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, who knows? And a lot of the the film festivals are also kind of shaking right now. They're a little nervous because uh, the fall is festival season, and that's where you have a lot of star power, a lot of big promotion via your actors uh, showing up these different film festivals, and they just can't. So. Film festivals are starting to, starting to sweat it too. Yeah, uh, it's great. It's great, great for the industry. Uh, I hope everybody gets their way soon. I guess uh, one more thing before we talk about Barbie, and we got to talk about the box office. Um, there were some big projections for Barbie and Oppenheimer. Both films sailed past what they were expected to make. Insane weekend at the box office. Andy, you mind you mind taking this for us? Yeah. So Barbie was projected to make between 100 and 110 million and it blew that out of the water with 162 million dollar weekend and it's now as of today tuesday made over 400 million worldwide i think it's well on its way to a bar billion dollars predicted on this this show <laughs> um <laughs> oppenheimer you, also okay, go ahead. yeah it's fine <laughs> Oppenheimer also had a, a huge opening, $82 million, uh, the third best for Christopher Nolan behind the, uh, his Batman films. This was a big surprise to me because usually when there's two big movies in a weekend, one of them loses out. Everyone goes to one and not the other, and a rising tide rose all ships uh, this this weekend with audiences going to both doing double features. I don't know how people did it, but it, it's been a huge weekend at the movies, very successful. I spent all weekend coming up with a bar billion. <laughs> Barbillion is great. Quality. That's good content, Andy. You're, you're a pro. Uh, the only real loser, I think, at the box office this weekend is Tom Cruise and Paramount with uh, Mission Impossible, right? Like, unfortunately, underperforming uh, in its new weeks. I don't know if anybody's really surprised by this. Um, it did fine when it came out, but it's not doing quite the numbers they expected. And how could it, right? Like, everybody's going to one of these two features. This is the whole thing. Man, I saw all weekend at the movies people wearing shirts and, yeah, like with the Barbenheimer split down the middle with the logos like i saw a woman with a poster board at barbie like it was like people were turning out for a concert i haven't seen people dress up for the movies like this since i saw i don't know force awakens like and this is days into the weekend people were excited about this i mean i don't i don't know how 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 hollywood could ever cook up this kind of buzz not like intentionally again this is like this insane amalgamation of i don't know well all things cinema right like the thing the 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 adventures we go to at the movies barbie and oppenheimer two incredibly different movies somehow bringing people together uh to have a good time at the movies in the middle of july yeah it shows you the importance of of buzz and groundswell and getting people excited for different movies and what a lot of things this summer have lacked you know no one was excited for indiana jones five or Mission Impossible 7. Uh, the Transformers movie did okay. That's another toy movie that's good to kind of compare this this weekend to. And then The, the Flash, like uh, Warner Brothers' biggest dud of all time, apparently. So you really got to get people excited for the movie. It can't just be good or it can't be okay. You can probably even have kind of a mediocre movie, but if you can get 
everyone is super excited about it. I mean, I've been excited about the about the Barbie movie since that first teaser where we we saw a, just a glimpse of Barbie Land and some of the musical numbers, and it was like that looks amazing. Yeah, it's a good looking movie for sure, and we'll talk about it in a second. But one more quick note about this before we move on. Um, I saw some some discourse, and, and I may have participated this on tw- participated in this on Twitter a little, a little maybe. Uh, I saw some people talking about how uh, Christopher Nolan, right? This is Oppenheimer's first film away from Warner Brothers, his studio of twenty years, under which he's produced all of his great films. Uh, this is his first film with Universal. He left Warner Brothers after Tenet came out due to uh, complications, I think, in how Warner Brothers was handling that release. Uh, he went to Universal and his first film out in theaters following that immediately has a Warner Brothers competitor in Barbie. Lots of laughs at Mr. Nolan, right? Barbie's going to make double what his movie makes. Oh man, it's going to crush Oppenheimer at the box office. We talked about it on this very show. But I think probably the best thing that could have happened to uh, Christopher Nolan's movie uh, following his split from Warner Brothers is this surprisingly effective mashup because Oppenheimer, I think has made more money than it would have had it just dropped by itself in a weekend. I think it would have been a quiet release. Some people would have thought it was cool, but Barbenheimer carries it into a place where it makes more money and Barbie makes more money. Like, I think this has been something really special and I don't, I don't know the next time we'll see like two movies generate this much buzz again. It's, it's wild, truly wild. Yeah, absolutely. It's been just a uh, a banner weekend in in cinema. Yeah, it sure has. And yeah, speaking I, of banner, oh, go ahead, Crystal. I'm sorry. I was going to say I agree with that. I mean, I think one of the biggest draws to it you saw everywhere all the memes of like my gothic side and my Barbie side. I mean, everybody has that. <laughs> I really think right. that it helped Oppenheimer make more money. Yeah, Meme like I, magic. Yeah. Yes, like I think Barbie lifted Oppenheimer, which is crazy. Uh, who'd have thought? And with that, we need to start talking about it, of course. Uh, the first film of the episode, uh, Andy's going to be taken here. Uh, Andy, please take it away. Barbie. So this is the long gestating project uh, directed by Greta Gerwig, uh, written by her and her partner Noah Baumbach, uh, starring Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling in the the lead roles. This project has been in development for years, almost a decade, and it's changed hands. It's changed directors. At one point, Amy Schumer uh, was going to star star in the titular role. Um, so it's changed hands, and it's finally out. Uh, Mattel's Barbie movie, long awaited. So our story begins in Barbie land where we meet Margot Robbie as Barbie. She is stereotypical Barbie and everything in Barbie land's amazing. Everything's pink. Everyone's happy. Everyone's having a, a good time. We, we meet a, a huge array uh, of Barbies played by this uh, amazing cast, including uh, Issa Rae, Kate McKinnon, Emma, uh, Emma Mackey, Hari Neff, Dua Lipa. I mean, on and on and on. There's a, just a ton uh, throughout the movie. Eventually, Barbie begins to kind of have a little bit of an existential crisis. Uh, strange things start happening. Like she kind of falls off uh, her her house. Uh, her feet go flat. They don't have that that um, you know kind of famous arch that they have. And she starts having these, these thoughts about like, you guys ever think about dying? And we we kind of learn that that there is uh, a real world avatar or kind of person who plays with Barbie, and she's kind of feeling those same feelings. So then she goes on a quest along with Ken to to find the real life uh, person, girl that is playing with her and kind of see what is happening. What, what What's up with uh, 
um, my, my human character. And then she also learns what it means to be in the real world, which is in stark difference to Barbie land. So that's our setup. There's a lot going on in this, in this movie, lots to talk about. Uh, Zach, what'd you think? I think Barbie's uh, a really stellar movie. I, I think I think it's really cool, and I, I really enjoyed it, and I'm excited to see it again. I, you know, going into it, I think Greta Gerwig has to answer the question, like, what do audiences expect of a Barbie movie? Is it going to be for kids? Is it going to be for jaded millennials? Uh, is it going to be for older folks who used to play with Barbie, like back in the day, right? It's a big legacy property. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, Barbie media to come before. This is a, a different kind of approach. And I think from their first like teaser trailer with the open of the film, which is the 2001 A Space Odyssey sequence, they wanted to make it really obvious that we are not making this for children. I mean, you can bring kids, but like mostly it's aimed at people a little bit more mature. And in the same way that people, I think, walk into the Barbie movie with some kind of expectation, I think Gerwig does a great job of holding up like uh, women, uh, the idea of women, women, women as a concept, and what people expect of them, and, and kind of placing those two things adjacent to create an adventure that's surprisingly fun, candid, uh, really surreal, uh, and very funny. Uh, I liked Barbie a lot. I'm excited to talk about it. Crystal, what did you think of Barbie? Oh, I love Barbie. <laughs> I think it was such a great blend um, of things for so many different audiences, too. Um, and a lot of times when movies try to be for every audience, they fail horribly. Um, and it, it just ruins it for every audience. Um, but there, there were jokes in there for lesbians. There were jokes in there for kids. There were jokes in there for those of us who played with Barbie in the 90s. There were jokes for people when Barbie first came out in the 50s. Uh, there was a lot of different things in there that I really appreciated, even if the joke wasn't for me specifically, if that makes sense. Um, so that was something that I really appreciated. And I really liked seeing so much of the throwbacks. Um, if you weren't someone who played with Barbie, you might have missed that, but it was chock full of Easter eggs. Um, and sometimes that can get really annoying, but it was something that I really appreciated in this movie because it brings you back to those classic moments and everyone, because there's so many options with Barbie, had a different classic moment. So I just felt like it was so many options to connect with the audience individually absolutely no I, th I feel the same way andy where do you want to start talking about this thing uh well i, I just want to give my quick thoughts before we get into uh specifics was uh uh this movie grew on me over the weekend i think it, i suffered from like the hype viewing where i was really hyped for it and i was uh, a little like i wasn't very enamored with it initially but it i've grown to really really like it sometimes that, that happens like where second viewing or third viewing is actually way better than your initial that's how i felt about like the joker movie i didn't really like it in, initially um but i'm really lo loving this in in hindsight it's just it's so much fun uh but it's also very serious you know you you have the almost Toy Story version of of a toy and their environment, their home Barbie land, amazing, all and all the different versions. But then you also have very real issues of what it, what it, what it's like and what it means to be a, a woman in modern times and what it meant twenty years, thirty years, fifty, sixty years. Um, it also addresses problematic elements of the Barbie brand and you know they're like, oh, this Barbie used to have like inflatable breasts and it's like, oh, geez. Um, so they didn't shy away from that, but but there's a, a lot of great things uh, to talk about. Um, yeah, go yeah, ahead. Where, where do you want to? Well, I was going to say I think where I'd probably want to kick it off is its setting. I think that's kind of the first place we should talk about. It. I know the cast is really important. I want to talk about the script. 
Um, but you can't talk about Barbie without talking about Barbie Land, uh, which is this uh, surreal, uh, hypersaturated, bright pink, bright blue world that all of the Barbies and all of the Kens live in. That's uh, where the film opens, of course. You could see it in the trailer. Uh, and everything is Barbie-sized and Barbie-oriented. The Barbie Dream House looks just like the Barbie Dream House, right? And and there's no real water uh, and there's no real food. <laughs> like all the Barbies and Kens uh, eat and drink as if they were eating and drinking of the Mattel toys of old. And every Barbie uh, is a certain kind of Barbie, just like Crystal described. Uh, uh, uniquely STEM-oriented, which we should talk about in a second. Uh, we have a Dr. Barbie and a President Barbie and a Lawyer Barbie and a Scientist Barbie. And of course, we have Margot Robbie's Barbie, who is stereotypical Barbie. She's the Barbie you think of whenever you just think of Barbie, right? Like your blonde-haired, blue-eyed Barbie. And we have Ryan Gosling's Ken, right? Who just wants Barbie's attention so bad. It, like, it's all he wants in the whole wide world. Uh, and meanwhile, Barbie's got other bigger, bigger fish to fry. Um, and when something goes amiss I should say I don't want to give it away when I have a spoiler show but uh, in Barbie land uh, Barbie and Ken have to travel to the real world uh, and that's where they discover that things are not as they expected right things do not quite run the same way as they do in Barbie land the real world is still a little surreal especially the Mattel headquarters which is a unique setting and makes for a lot of good comedy, I think, in the film. Uh, but otherwise, like bouncing between Barbie Land and the real world creates a unique blend of like surreal and reality that I think disarms you uh, for its most emotional moments. Uh, reminding me a little like a Wes Anderson movie, right? Like with a big artificial set. Um, that creates, I don't know, like a setting for your characters to just kind of play and have fun. And you don't have to spend too much time getting mired in like the complicated. What do you think, Andy? Uh, the sets are one of the things that really sells this movie. When I first saw the te teaser, however many months ago it was, that's what really blew me away. I was like, oh, they've built these sets. Like they've used, you know, like hammer and nail and a ton of pink. And it's not all just CGI. Like a, a lot of things uh, would tend to be. Uh, it just really, it it creates buy-in to where you're like, oh, this world is very real. And it's a stark contrast from the real world. I was a little worried that this entire movie would take place in the real world because we get, we go there fairly early in the film. And I was like, Oh no, if like 80% of this movie's in the real world, that's going to kind of be a, a bait and switch, but it's not that we, we do spend a lot of time in, in Barbie land. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's a good thing too. crystal hot takes on, I don't know, our set look of the movie. Yeah, that was something I really, the movie is very campy, um, but they also limit those campiness, that campiness to the moments when they are dolls, right? And so it creates this dichotomy between their real world and their doll selves. Um, and I think even when they go into the real world, right, their characters and their outfits still look very camp and it, it looks like they're standing out from their surroundings. And so I really loved the distension from reality i don't know if that's the right word i'm looking for that it created because like you said the water's plastic the food's plastic everything is doll like um one of the things that i really appreciate was they keep pointing out that they don't have genitalia because they are dolls <laughs> you know so <laughs> i thought that was really funny yeah i i was in the same boat uh andy what are we talking about next cast comedy uh, let's get to, to cast. So I mentioned before, there's a massive, massive cast of people who show up as, as different Barbies and play different Barbies. Um, it's funny to look at the cast lists because they all just talk to each other as Barbie. Um, Margot Robbie's, of course, uh, shouldering this film as the lead. Uh, she's amazing in, in as she is in so so many things. Uh, we were actually just wa watching her in Babylon la uh, last night. Uh, but but she does that mix of you know she's campy when she needs 
to be campy. And then she's also like, there are some really serious in the moments where she really delivers. And I think one of the funniest things for me is that is to have humans act like the dolls have the limited mobility. You know, there's a moment where she's really kind of upset and crying on the ground and she's just like turning her in around awkwardly and like moving her arms away. A stiff doll was, and it's just like little things like that. Um, incredible performance from her. And of course, the man of the hour, uh, Ryan Gosling as Ken, who is totally committed to this. I mean, the people are talking about like he he's like method acting as Ken because he's like in character off off screen and, and on screen. Like all his PR bits he's done as Ken. He's taken it so seriously. Um, and he's really funny. He's got a, a lot of just funny bits and also has a lot of uh, surprising character development. Yeah, like I've been really impressed with uh, the marketing for the film. I think a lot of people think it has like a billion dollar marketing budget, but I honestly I think a lot of it's just memes and people sharing it organically. Like I think they did a lot to, to market the movie, but I don't know if they did much more than the average feature. Yeah, Gosling's a delight in interviews. Uh, people are talking about him for, an, for a supporting actor Oscar for this. Um, it kills me that I haven't heard more of that buzz for Robbie because she's so tremendous in this movie. The supporting cast is fantastic too. Uh, a bunch of winners in there. Issa Rae, Simu Lee, uh, 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 Simu Liu, uh, Will Ferrell, uh, Harry Neff, uh, who we should talk about in a second. Um, but like, I think Robbie does such a great job of pulling you into the emotion. Like, um, it, there's a great bit in Babylon, Speak of the Devil, movie I think is tremendous, uh, where Margot Robbie is noticed for her ability to to cry on camera on demand, uh, like one tier, two tier, and she cries on demand like six times in this movie, and every time it like tugs at your heartstrings, like, every time it feels meaningful. It's never like a joke. You're never meant to laugh at it. Like every time it 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 draws on emotion that feels very tangible and real, and that's movie magic, man. Like that that stuff is special. Like that can make you feel something by staring at the silver screen. Um, Gerwig manages to land that perfectly. Uh, their script with Noah Baumbach is fantastic. Uh, Crystal, hot takes on the Barbies, the Kens. What do you think? Um, so the movie tagline is she's everything and he's just Ken. Um, and I think there's a lot of people who hated on that, hated on that idea in the movie. But when the doll was created, Ken was created 10 years after Barbie. And, you know, it's Barbie's name on Malibu Dreamhouse, on the car, everything. And Ken has only ever been her boyfriend. They're not married. So Ken was literally created as an accessory to Barbie. And I think that's something that this movie does so well that so many people take as a political comment, which I'm sure they doubled as to make it funny. But in reality, he he's always just been Ken, while Barbie's been Dr. Barbie, journalist Barbie, all these things. Um, the first Ken that ever came out, the only clothing he ever had was a pair of swim trunks, and they never gave him any more accessories or anything, you know. So I think that's something that the movie does really well. There's a bunch of Kens, and they're all just Ken. Through the whole movie, they all just call each other Ken. But there's all the Barbies are by their profession, President Barbie, Dr. Barbie. And I really loved that the professions were either, like I said, political or what you mentioned, STEM. There's one Barbie, Mermaid Barbie, um, Dua Lipa, and that's a great throw in there. But literally every single other one is a journalist or a diplomat, um, things like that. So I really appreciated that. I will, however, add that I never want to see John Cena act in anything again. Merkin was his titular role. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> Uh, apparently yeah. he brought his own wig apparently he has like a col a, co a collection because people are pointing out like his wig looks amazing and like Dua Lipa's is kind of it's a little shoddy and apparently it's because it's 
his own and it's like fit to his and cut to his head and all, and Didn't all that. Didn't he wear some wig like that in some other movie or commercial he was in? I wonder if he like kept the wig. Probably. <laughs> Maybe. Now that, you, now that you mentioned it, I think I have seen him in a long blonde wig like one other time. I can't, <laughs> can't tell you what it was though. But yeah, you're, you're probably right. Yeah, friend of the show, John Cena. Everybody loves that guy. Uh, Andy, what's what's next? I feel, I feel like we've been talking a long time and we should start to curb this, but there's a lot to say. Right. I wanted to get a little bit in into the the plot. There is a lot going on and there's I think I, I want to talk about like the inspirations that there there's hints of like Toy Story of the Pinocchio story of uh, this kind of these other coming of age. But there, there's so much inspiration in the movie um, that it just, it just culminates in this this amazing thing. Our plot does get kind of complicated the the longer we we go and i don't want to spoil uh anything uh but things get interesting when we return to barbie land from from the the real world uh but it's just it's a lot of fun along the way yeah i was really satisfied with the way barbie and ken are changed when they go to the real world and how that affects their kind of general impressions of people and themselves. Uh, and then when that kind of goes back to Barbie land and starts to kind of, kind of change things too, for those who haven't seen the movie, um, it's satisfying and it's big and, it, and it's bold. And I, I realize that some people uh, like Crystal said, have been taking some offense to it on the internet. And like, I, I don't know, man, I think they're all a bunch of squares. It's just a movie. Like don't overthink it. It's a fantastic popcorn feature. Uh, and I love what it has to say about gender and I love what it has to say about what we expect of one another and, and projecting our own beliefs on the other and what that will do to people and, and why we shouldn't let each other do that to one another. Like it's, it's important. Um, and most importantly, like I love the audience that came to it. My theater was all like moms and girlfriends and girls like, and I can't like we, God, we've done 221 episodes of the show. Never have I walked into a theater with that kind of turnout, like tremendous, like speaking to an audience who doesn't often get out to the movies like really great uh, and and i was i was really pleased with it crystal uh, general that was one thing i wanted to add yeah. um just about greta gerwig in general um i read her process and a couple interviews about doing this movie and i know you don't do spoilers so i'll try to keep it vague but she she took a really um important stance on how she ended the movie and she represented girls you know in those stem positions like we talked about but in the final line of the movie she really wanted to leave a good point and i think she did that very well i you know i won't say what that is but i think that she barbie was designed for girls to imagine what it would be like to be an adult girl and she kept that in mind when she was developing this movie and and even in the final line that girls walk away from that theater with knowing who would be the in the audience so i really appreciated that likewise uh, a tremendous feature andy any other any other thoughts uh last thing i, I just thought as we're playing the trailer footage uh kate mckinnon plays um Weird oh, Barbie. Weird Barbie. Yes, th thank you. She's the Barbie that that you experimented on. That you you know you you cut her hair weird and drew on with with marker, um, and she's absolutely hilarious because like that comes through in her personality. She has various looks. She sits in the splits all the time. Like it's those kinds of details that that are so good. And it, and it's like so much of of the movies is aimed at men and boys like i was thinking about all the movies that have come out this summer like uh guardians spider-man the flash fast x uh indiana jones mission impossible these are all aimed at dudes largely and we have our easter eggs and, and it's, it's just such great representation to finally have 
a property for women that have all those Easter eggs and things. If you know, you know, uh, in them as well. Yeah, it's true. Like we've seen a lot of like dude oriented films on this show naturally. Right. Uh, it's, it's, it's genuinely refreshing to see something different, see something new, uh, to hear bold voices. Um, it's tremendous. Uh, recommendations? Are we ready? We are ready. Andy, would you recommend Barbie? Absolutely would. Uh, definitely the biggest movie of the summer. going to be one of the biggest films of the year. Uh, surprisingly, uh, just great time. It's funny. It's endearing. It's sweet. It looks amazing. There's a lot of mu- there's musical numbers. Uh, it's everything you you want uh, in a movie. Yeah, I, I'm in the same boat. I think Barbie's tremendous. Uh, I I I wish I could tell you to go see it on the biggest screen possible. Unfortunately, Oppenheimer has pretty much all of those locked down, and any that aren't are going to Mission Impossible. But still, go see it on the big screen. Uh, you'll probably have a great crowd watching it. Like I think it's still selling really well. Uh, it's crushing at the box office. Um, Barbie's a great time. Crystal, what do you think? Recommendations? Twelve out of ten. I loved it. Just make sure you watch it somewhere where you're allowed to laugh really loud. <laughs> Yeah, big time. Uh, Crystal, thanks for joining us on the show. Uh, we're going to talk about the writer's strike, Death of Cinema. Uh, do you want to stick around? Uh, you're going to duck? Wait, no obligation. I have not seen Oppenheimer, so I'm going to dip so y'all don't ruin anything for me, but enjoy. <laughs> Rock on. Thanks for joining us. Seriously, you did great. Don't you, Fantastic work. Uh, you'll thanks. have to come back soon. Yeah. All right, bye. All right, Andy, uh, with that, we should introduce uh, our next segment. You want to uh, do the honors on this? It's time for the death of cinema. So we haven't, uh, we took a week off and it, within that, during that time, uh, the actors guild went on strike. I think actually like the day after we, we recorded last, um, the writer strike has already been on, on strike for a couple of months now. Uh, the writer strike just for a couple of weeks. A lot of the same issues. It's about residual pay. Streaming doesn't really pay residuals to to anyone or it pays pennies on shows that have made billions of dollars and been incredibly uh, popular. Uh, AI issues as well. Uh, apparently the studios were wanting to do things like, let's say you're an extra, they want to scan your body and your likeness in you know, 20 poses and then just use your likeness in films uh, until kingdom come and not pay you anything for it i i've been really like i said in our news segment earlier um astounded stunned i think by like the lack of movement on this like i know typically these strikes take a little time to figure out terms and what people are going to do but like, like i said at the top like it seems like every major studio is not budging on this and it's weird. Like, I would think some of them would start to fall in line, right? Some of them would engage. I know SAG-AFTRA has passed uh, some, uh, it has allowed a couple of studios, some indie studios to work through things because indie studios have agreed to their terms and are willing to pay actors fairly and adjust residuals. What, probably the biggest one being A24, who is currently in production on two films um, because they are agreeing to SAG-AFTRA's demands and they're getting a waiver from the union, uh, which is great. So it wouldn't be impossible for Universal or Warner Brothers or Disney or any of them to say, you know what? You guys are right. You know what? It's worth it. You're worth it. You're our talent. You're our stars. Welcome back. Same with the writers, right? Uh, nothing doing. It just seems like silence out there, right? 
Yeah, I mean, the studios aren't budging. It's, uh, you know, the famous Batman phrase when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. No one wants to budge to budge and and the and frankly the, the writers and actors are shouldn't be the the ones they're they're the ones who are losing out we've seen um just a, a lot of famous people post uh kimiko glenn who was on um orange is the new black which was one of the titular netflix shows about 10 years ago she was she was in like 40 some, some odd episodes and she posted a residual check that was like 66 cents like just absurd um that that you're paying people so low they're getting nothing from streaming because in the old days they had deals worked out with cable where you could measure okay this much ad spend during your show you get a percentage of that uh there's no way to measure how much people watch streaming the streaming services keep that real close to the chest they don't share a lot of that information with anyone so we just don't know there's no way to measure um and they're just not paying people for it it's true. Uh, alternatively, on the other side of the strike, uh, people have been starting to raise an eyebrow at big A-list actors and actresses who are curiously not appearing on the picket lines. You've got some big ones out there, right? You got Bob Odenkirk and uh, Brian Cranston. Uh, I was just looking at a list the other day of, of, of big ones that are appearing out there. There's definitely some folks, but like you know, you're not getting Tom Cruise out there. Uh, he actually caught a little bit of flack the other day with a story that was like, hey, why isn't Tom Cruise on the picket lines? And he apparently has been very vocal behind the scenes that he supports SAG-AFTRA, uh, but he's not going out and taking photos. Uh, one agency said they were getting calls from a couple of their actors and actresses asking if they should book hair and makeup so they can go out on the picket line. And the agency had to be like, hey, it's not a red carpet event. Like, you're yeah. not out there for media purposes, you know? Like, you're out there to say your mind and speak it. And it seems like maybe some of these big earners aren't so interested in jumping in. Although one notable exception I think is worth mentioning, uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson uh, is not out picketing. Reading that what you will. But uh, he did donate a seven-figure sum to SAG-AFTRA. They said it was their biggest, largest single donor donation ever in the history of the guild. Um Hey, man, credit where it's due. You donated at least a milli in one go. I guess you're not out taking photos, but that that's that's a pretty good chunk of change, right? Yeah, I guarantee a lot of those big team actors, they would rather donate money than have to get out there in the picket line for eight hours in the sun. Like, Yeah, and it's a shame because like, them being out there would mean a lot because that draws eyes, right? Like, There's already some notable folks out there for sure, and they're worth mentioning. And if I had that list of them up, I'd be talking about them right now. Uh, but like, I, it would mean more, I think, if they were out there. Like, that was the problem with the writer's strike. Nobody knows what writers look like. But you see, you know, Tom Cruise walking around out there with a picket sign? That's going to get clicks. That's going to get eyes. That's going to draw heat. It seems like the big ones are kind of, you know, they're, they're wavering, right? They're, they're faltering on their ability to step up. At le- I, I don't know. Seems like. Well, they can, they can also afford to weather the storm. You know, if this lasts another six months, like they're, they're going to be fine. Um, so, and again, I, I think they just don't want to get their hands dirty with the rest of the common folk. And it's funny because it's a pretty rough storm as it is because of the writer's strike ahead of it, right? Like production was already kind of grinding to slow with that happening. But now with SAG after shutting down, 
uh, it's even worse. Some productions were rolling ahead. Uh, Disney's Andor series, season two on Disney Plus, uh, was filming without writers. Uh, now they've obviously stopped because they don't have actors. Uh, I was throwing shade at Ryan Reynolds and uh, Hugh Jackman for filming uh, Deadpool two without writers. Deadpool, a, a, show, a film film series that infamously does not need writers, right? Um, they were filming without writers and it was like, that's kind of lame. But then when SAG after shuts down, they're like, well, we, we, we can't break the picket line now. Like it was fine when writers were getting shafted, but now that your paychecks like up in the air, suddenly you're not so keen on going to work, you know, like I just, it's easy to read into it. I think the important notes are, you know, Stuff needs to change and people need to start paying out. And we don't need people like Disney CEO Bob Iger sticking their foot in it and being infamously anti-strike. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like like the suits are, I mean, they're going to try and weather this thing as well. I think that's that's part of the reason they're looking to push titles. Um, I mean, someone, it was rumored there was Bob Iger said, you know, we'll just wait until they lose their homes and apartments, which went over really poorly. Uh you know, they're, they, I mean, studios just don't want to pay, um, at all. You know, it might, it would, you know, hurt the bottom line. Oh, some, will someone think of the shareholders? Um, so it, it, it seems, like I said, between a rock and a hard, hard place. And we'll see how, how long it goes. Uh, but what I keep hearing is, you know, the actors and writers, they're already used to, to living on a shoestring budget, um, a lot of them already have second and third jobs, so they'll just take uh, kind of more of those as they wait for the industry to turn around. They can survive this. Yeah, so I it's hear. It, the the Iger comment was really stunning, just because like I remember Chapik getting roasted by the Disney board of directors when he put out that like letter about the "Don't Say Gay" bill in Florida and where Disney stands on it. Like they got pissed and hit furious reportedly because they were like why are you the disney ceo stepping into very public politics stop it right like nobody's asking you to make a statement just say nothing and that's how i feel about Iger speaking out about the strike just like dude somebody at disney is pissed at him they're like what are you doing like why are you commenting on this you know just say nothing like that doesn't help our company that doesn't help our company image it certainly doesn't help disney uh, I don't know how much longer this is going to go on. I think I'm, you know, I, in a way, I, I respect that the productions are getting moved for it. Like, that's what a good strike is, right? Like, it shuts down production. And so far, it's working. Uh, shout out to the studios that are doing it better, right? A24, uh, another 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 winner, right? Certified GOAT. Uh, and, you know, for the ones who aren't, I hope they fall in line soon. I really do. Because, yeah, I, I don't know how much longer we're going to go here before we start genuinely seeing large swaths of delays. We're going to enter, like, COVID era again, right? Like, no content. Um, that's not good for anybody. Yeah, I think that's going to be one of the big uh, things. You're already seeing... I saw a list where probably half of productions or things that were supposed to come out in, like, the fall, spring, summer uh, have been delayed because of the strike or just put on hold. And a lot of these things like the, the MCU particularly are kind of hanging on by a thread right now. It's, it's not really super cohesive. And if they get a ton of delays on their very, very like specialized timeline for releases, it's just going to crumble. You're just going to have entire cinematic use universe. They're just going to cancel because there's like, well, it's been too long since this. No one remembers that. This project never really got off the ground, and it's just it's just going to come to a grinding halt for some of these bigger properties, I think. 
Yeah. Billionaires can't cry poverty. Uh, greed will erode these brands. Like if they don't do something soon, uh, it's not going to be good for anyone. Everybody loses. So like, I, you know, I hope the people who make a lot of money step up and do something about it. Um, I hope the people that are earning the money step up and do something too. You know, like someone's got to change. Uh, and it's not getting any cooler in LA. The strikers need some water. So uh, keep it here and off script for more about the strike. I mean, we're going to be talking about it till we're not. I think it's going to continue to dominate the news. If anything, it's only going to get more important in the film world. Um, we'll see where they go. God bless them. And with that, we need to talk about uh, our final film of the episode. Uh, I'm going to be taking the summary on this one, which is a little stressful because I haven't quite rehearsed it as much as I should. So maybe I'll not, may lean on the IMDb summary a little bit here because we'll be fully transparent. Uh, with that, let's talk about it. The movie is Oppenheimer. So Oppenheimer is a historical biopic from uh, large-scale filmmaker Christopher Nolan. It's his first film with Universal, following a split from Warner Brothers, uh, his story studio of 20 years, uh, under which he produced The Dark Knight, Prestige, Interstellar, Inception, Tenet, uh, his last one. Uh, and now he is back with Oppenheimer. Uh, the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the American scientist that created the atomic bomb that was swiftly dropped on uh, Japan uh, in a horrifying act of war. Uh, two of them, actually. It was a whole thing. Uh, the movie doesn't focus so much on that, fortunately, more on the building of the bomb, right? And J. Robert Oppenheimer, who's a young, up-and-coming scientist who sees the world differently and wants to explore what's possible uh, in space and time. Uh, but suddenly, of course, about halfway through his career, uh, America enters the war, uh, uh, Hitler declares war on the world. World War II kicks off. And right when I think the atom is split, uh, Oppenheimer realizes that every great physicist uh, would have the ability to create a large-scale explosion, a bomb, if you will. Uh, and suddenly, countries begin scrambling to grab up scientists as fast as they can to be the first to create the weapon that will end the war among, uh, upon their enemies. Uh, it is a wild three-hour biopic. Uh, chunks of it are in black and white. There's incredible uh, footage of explosions, space-time, all of which is claimed to be made without CGI. Obviously, still a little visual effects, I think. Um, but... Anti-CGI Chris Nolan has done something uh, rather stunning here. Film stars Killian Murphy uh, as the titular Oppenheimer. The movie is Oppenheimer. Andy, what'd you think? Like we were saying, what a weekend at the movies. And Oppenheimer couldn't be any different from Barbie. It's a three-hour biographical epic. Largely, it's kind of a political historical drama more than anything. Um, it's less about the bomb and more about an actual biopic of Oppenheimer, which was a little surprising because the trailer really plays up the, the bomb development and, and that. And that's definitely a big part, but it's much more uh, about the person of J. Robert Oppenheimer and how he kind of fits in or kind of doesn't fit in to the, like he's a brilliant man, but he doesn't play the politics game very w well. He uh, is a bit of a womanizer and, and uh, you know, does these, these things, uh, at places he works. He also just doesn't un understand the, the polit politics at, at large, what it means to develop the bomb. What, what is it going to mean when America has, when you're the only one or when you're one of a few people in, in the world, uh, there's a lot of people talking in rooms, but as, as well as um, just really good pacing. It's three hours long, but it doesn't feel like three hours. There's hints of, of Terrence Malick, um, especially in the beginning, uh, Terrence Malick, of course, if you've seen something like the tree of life that juxtaposes all these, uh, 
images of the creation of, of the universe. We get a little bit of that as, as we see Oppenheimer kind of uh, thinking and formulating th scientific thoughts in his mind. A huge cast, a lot going on in this film, so much to talk about. Uh, I think we should probably start with our cast. Uh, and then I do want to talk about kind of the life and times of J. Robert Oppenheimer, because, of course, he is our focus. Uh, the film is headed by Killian Murphy as J. Robert Oppenheimer, uh, an old Nolan favorite, right? He's been in a handful of Nolan films, and Nolan has wanted to use him as a protagonist for a long time. Uh, he tested for Batman. Is a screen test you can find on YouTube of him testing for Batman Begins for settling on Scarecrow. Uh, Nolan always said he loved his piercing blue eyes. That was a thing. He loved that 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 uh, Killian Murphy just has these like strikingly ice blue eyes, uh, which is true, and are very much featured here. Uh, and when Nolan got this book, uh, American Prometheus, uh, which is what this movie is based on, uh, he got that from Rob Pattinson. Rob Pattinson gave it to him. So he said, uh, I think on the set of Tenet. Uh, he was like, hey, I've been reading this book. I think you might like it. And he gave it to him and Nolan loved it. And he was like, oh my God, this is something brilliant. Uh, it's surprising because Robert Pattinson isn't in this movie. You'd think he would have shown up somewhere in there. Yeah. Uh, maybe when he went off to do Batman, Nolan was Sour Grapes. Probably not. I think they're fine. But anyway, uh, he said, Nolan said in an interview that he saw on his desk uh, the cover of American Prometheus like from far away. And he thought, by God, that's Killian Murphy. That, that's him right there. Uh, the film also stars Emily Blunt, uh, God, a whole host, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Alden Ehrenreich, Jason Clark, Tony Goldwyn, Kenneth Branagh, just to name a few. Uh, I, I, there's a bunch others in here. I almost don't want to give them away because uh, much like a Wes Anderson film, the cast is so charming and so many of them are just used for like a couple scenes and then you don't see them again. And it makes for like a, a great carousel of interesting characters to swim in and out of your movie like that keeps our, our three hour plot line uh, moving very effectively. Uh, even through its kind of back and forth time shift sequences, which I think we can talk about without giving away too much. Yeah, the the, the movie juxtaposes the you know uh, Oppenheimer's very early life in in science to also getting recruited to to develop the bomb with uh scenes that take place about 10 15 years later um where he's being in interrogated uh about his security cl clearance in and how that relates to members of of Congress uh in very different periods and and you have this juxtaposition of you know, he was this this great figure in the American war effort, and then ten years later, he's persona non grata. Um, and you also had just have this background of kind of red scare uh, going on. This was very anti communist time uh, when McCarthyism started to kind of uh, develop. So you have that going on in the background, and this is again when Oppenheimer's not good at playing the politics of it. He he's very open minded. He associates with left wing and co communist groups and people are like stop doing that stop hanging out stop talking about unionizing in the teacher's lounge um and he he doesn't he does what he wants to do what he th he thinks is is right in in the moment so we have the, these political issues kind of going on in the background as well and there's like one of the big issues is the secrecy of it all and Matt Damon's trying to keep people separate he's trying to keep the secrecy like this group of people doesn't talk to this group of people and Oppenheimer's like uh they got to talk or we're not gonna get it done he just d does it so there's a yeah. lot of layers going on 
Yeah, I was really interested in the, the kind of back and forth. People have compared it to like the social network, uh, the way that movie features like Mark Zuckerberg and friends building Facebook and then cuts between that and like the, the trial where they're like reviewing evidence of who's suing who for Facebook's creation and you get your characters kind of bouncing between early and later. Uh, same, similar kind of setup here. Uh, a bit more exciting, of course, but uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer is, is really uniquely positioned in this movie. It would have been easy, I think, to frame him as a hero because that's what America wants to see him as, right? Like once he develops this device, people love the guy. Oh my God, they have a rally and he comes out, the man that moved the earth, right? He's he's the man. Um, but meanwhile, there's questions of security and cloak and dagger, right? Like functionally, the creation of the bomb is what pushed us into the Cold War, right? Like which was a time of secrets and secrecy and spies and information and coded messages. Like... All of that plays in here, and Oppenheimer not only pushes the boundaries of what's acceptable as far as security goes, in in his, in the sake of best interest for the country, I think, uh, in his own career, uh, but he also pushes the boundaries of his personal life. He has a number of relationships that are, aren't exactly uh, ethical, I'm going to use that term, and you can see watch the movie yourself and find out what I mean, uh, that, you know, stress his kind of character and his judgment and end up coming back to haunt him in these trial proceedings, uh, when he's being pushed into a, uh, a role he doesn't really want to be in, um, that stuff all plays into what we're watching, and it creates like a pretty interesting, multifaceted look at a character, while also keeping it at arm's length due to just the, the number of people in the cast. There's so many people here, and it, it does make for a lot of... Admittedly, a lot of people in rooms talking, and I think you either like that or you don't. Uh, and for an IMAX screen, it's uh, not a bad time, but I think maybe not what people expected due to a trailer that looks like a lot of landscapes and sweeping shots and bombs going off, right? Um, what do you think, Andy? It, it's, it's, the cinematography is just in, incredible in so many ways. The way, again, this is three hours long of a lot of people talking in rooms, and it still manages to be very exciting visually. Like you are, the pace is just go, go, go. It, it, you don't have like these long, slow moments like a lot of movies would do. I was actually reminded, of, strangely, of John Wick that fills a three hour runtime by just being go, go, go the whole, whole time. Um, but we just have incredible ways of laying out the the different interviews and different time periods. Part of the movie's in black and white. Part of it's in color. Part of it switches. We have ratio changes. Uh, if you see it in IMAX, you'll see the full screen uh, filled, but it, it changes. It's not filled the entire time. It, that that would be kind of a lazy, almost a lazy thing to do. But Nolan is very particular, and when he uses the entire screen, and then when he cuts it down into different sizes, it's funny. Um... Nolan, I was actually watching an interview with, with Matt Damon earlier. He and Killian Murphy have explained uh, in the interviews for this uh, something really interesting about the way Nolan makes movies, something I didn't know. At least now, maybe he used to be this way, but uh, on Oppenheimer, he doesn't use what's called a video village, uh, which is where on a lot of movie sets uh, you'll see like a tent or a tarp or something with like a dozen seats around it, and you'll see a bunch of monitors where the actors and the director and crew and producer can all go in and watch takes right after they happen. So you can do a couple good takes and you go to the video village and watch it back see how it looks okay we need to do this again we need to get that again continuity is off whatever Nolan did not do this for this film that's what they said these, these two two lead actors uh, they said what he does is he goes out on set he's got his cameraman looking through the lens and he's right next to the cameraman and they film it and he's right there next to the camera 
And he said, when they get the take they're looking for, he looks at the cameraman, the cameraman who's looking down the lens looks at him to confirm they got it, and that's it. You move on. And it leaves your actors this space to um, breathe a little because they're not stressing about, oh, I have to get this exactly right or I have to have to hit this note perfect. Like As soon as they get it, boom, got it. Next, next scene. Uh, it's like practically a guerrilla tactic nowadays. And Nolan makes it look so effortless because this film just looks great. <laughs> There's so much great looking stuff here. And whether they're juggling like giant loud IMAX cameras or something a bit more sincere, like they managed to create a really fantastic presentation. And presentation it was when we saw it, of course, in 70 millimeter IMAX. We got to talk about the experience. Andy. I, I was I was so excited when we booked this theater. We booked those, th- those tickets two months in advance to see it at one of 19 theaters in the United States that is showing the film in 70 millimeter film IMAX uh, it is wild giant print of the film it's 600 pounds and 11 miles long they a Cinemark where we watched it had to have a projectionist on staff all day just to make sure it didn't break like just to sit there and watch the IMAX print to make sure it didn't freak out and for our experience uh, tremendous giant sound big volume a little bit of a flicker in some of the bright parts but I want to say I think as somebody who used to work projection like I, I think that stuff's cool uh, I, I like that kind of tangible feeling to it Andy what'd you think it was it was incredible to be able to see it in its 70 millimeter glory. Uh, however, I was a little disappointed because there are just a few scenes that are really amazing, like like when you finally see the spoilers explosion coming, and some other scenes early on of like Oppenheimer thinking about how the sun works and stars imploding. But a lot of this film is not in the full IMAX frame. It's not the full five stories, and a lot of it is just people talking in rooms it's interviews going back and forth and discussion and strategy and it's not it's not what i think about when i think about imax usually uh, like a big action sequence like he would have had in the batman movies or in inception or other things like that so it's it was great to see it in imax but i and i and i hate i feel like this is blasphemous it's not like a must see in imax yeah i i kind of feel the same way uh, cause we were talking, just briefly talking about it earlier. Like I agree. You don't have to see an IMAX. That being said, I do think if you're going to see it, you should, it, it's like, it, what a couple extra bucks to see it on a premium screen. You should try to see it in that. You definitely don't need to see a 70 millimeter film. Like that's those tickets are mostly sold out anyway. But like, I promise if you're going to see it on an IMAX, you're still seeing it real big. Like you're not missing too much, but uh, for what it was, I thought it was really special. Two more quick things I want to touch on. I know this review is running long. Number one, uh, the horror of the film, um, there's definitely some weird existential horror going on in Oppenheimer uh, because obviously we, the audience, know well ahead of our characters just what devastation is to be wrought from their actions. And as they kind of find that out and things start to take a darker turn in Oppenheimer, like you get a really, really fascinating introspection into how you feel about the events of World War II and what J. Robert Oppenheimer and his scientist friends were working on out there. Uh, And additionally, I I wanted to mention the score. Dude, I think the score is so good in this movie. (laughs) Andy's a bit more middling on it than me. I still think it's incredible. (laughs) As soon as the movie was over, I leaned over during credits. I was like, score of the year, right? Oscar? Boom, (laughs) Rudolph Bronson, score of the year. Amazing. Maybe not. I might have gotten ahead of myself, but I do think it's stellar. The score is very good. Our our boy Ludwig uh, Göransson is back. Uh, he did the scores for he's done the scores for both Black Panther movies as well as Tenet, Christopher Nolan's last film. Uh, he's also done the, the themes for the Mandalorian show. 
Uh, so you definitely know his work, and I'm a big fan. Like I have the Tenet soundtrack on my big soundtrack playlist, as long as with Black Panther two. I wasn't as in love with this as I've been with some of his other stuff, but it, it's very inspired by uh, the work of, of minimalists. And I need to explain this just a little bit because minimalism in music is different from in art or in other. It doesn't doesn't mean small or sparse. What it kind of means is repetitive. Uh, if you think some, someone like Philip Glass or Hans Zimmer, that you have very repetitive uh, patterns that very slowly morph and change over time. Philip Glass is famous for doing his like, and for like minutes on end, and then things will slightly change. And so we, we get a lot of that. We also have the influence of composers like Steve Reich and the, kind of the minimalists of, of the 60s. So this doesn't sound as much like Ludwig Göransson as, as I've come to know his his work. It, it's more, it's a little bit more restrained, but I think it's, it's not that kind of movie. Like it's not an action movie. It's not Black Panther or, or uh, uh, Tenet, but... It, it it is really it's part part of what helps the pacing moves the move the music is moving the, the entire time yeah like the music is very consistent uh throughout the film and i think that's important like it gives it a pace and it just feels pressing right like that three hours goes by real quick and that's impressive it's not easy to do i i think nolan really does have the ability to produce like movie magic like he i mean by the by the time you get to the third act in prestige you're convinced a man can teleport and by the time you get to the the third act in this film like you're convinced like this bomb is is the biggest thing that you've ever seen on the screen like it's really tremendous and i think he can do something really special i think he brings it to the film any other thoughts for recommendations i'm ready andy would you recommend oppenheimer Absolutely. One of the best films of the year, one of the best films I've seen ever. Um, very different from, again, something like Barbie, but it's been amazing, the groundswell and, and the the buzz uh, for this movie. Again, it's a three-hour political historical uh, film that somehow keeps really good pace, and you're going to learn a lot, and it has a lot of themes about it, like you said, existentialism, uh, Red, Red Scare, that kind of free thinking. There's a couple of great scenes where... Uh, Oppenheimer imagines that they might light the entire atmosphere on, on, on fire. Like things like that are really amazing. Incredible score, incredible cast. Uh, highly, highly recommend. Uh, same. I think Oppenheimer's super good and you should totally see it. I, I think if you're interested, you should go see it in a theater while you still can. It'll be on streaming and considering it's universal, it's almost guaranteed to go to Peacock, which I don't know if any of you have, but uh, if you want to watch it there when it comes out, you can. Of course, it'll be PVOD as well, but if you have the ability, I think you should go see it in theater. And if you're going to a theater, I also think you should spend a couple more bucks and get a premium screen, in in my opinion, at least, at least because you can't do it for Barbie, uh, which is criminal. Stunning week at the movies too i uh, probably two top tens right in one weekend andy i feel yeah, yeah i feel absolutely. pretty confidently saying yeah like it's just insane yeah uh, yeah absolutely and um i i can't believe it because I, I thought oppenheimer would maybe suffer because of the success of barbie but they but like i said they've both done very well yeah both overperforming wild stuff Andy, what are we watching next week Next week we are we are taking a, a break because uh been a big weekend at, at the movies. Also not a lot coming out, but we are going to be next time we do the show, we're going to be looking at Talk to Me, which is the new horror feature from A24 that comes out this Friday, July 28th in theaters only. And then the following week we're going to be watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem, the new animated uh film that comes out only in theaters on August 4th. And for anyone interested this this week this Friday 
uh, Disney's Haunted Mansion uh, is coming out in theaters as well, if you have interest for that. It's a bummer. I wasn't thinking Haunted Mansion was going to underperform, but Andy and I were talking about it the other day, and I think he, he might have a good point. I think that movie might be in trouble. Any, any thoughts on that, Andy? Uh, I mean, you're coming out a week after Barbie and Oppenheimer are still going to be really big at the box office. Anyone who didn't see those over last weekend is going to go see it this weekend. A lot of people are going to repeat both of those movies. So I think the Haunted Mansion is going to be in real trouble. Yeah. And if you're trying to tackle like the teenage or a little older, like Gen Z audience, right? Uh, Haunted Mansion, which is, you know, kind of Pirates of the Caribbean, Disney, Jerry Bruckheimer looking stuff with a fine cast, lovely Keith Stanfield, uh, is going up against Talk to Me, a film made by two New Zealand YouTubers uh, that is still reported to be the hottest horror film of the year. So if you're a teenager, right? Like, which movie are you going to try to get into? Um, the kid ride or like the real show. Uh, I think, I think haunted mansions in trouble. It's a real bummer. We'll see though. Maybe not. We've been wrong before. Not often though. Uh, and in the meantime, yeah, we'll keep an eye on TMNT and talk to me when it comes out. If you enjoyed the show today, if you like what Andy and I had to say, if you want to hear crystal again, she did great. Andy, thanks for having her on. Uh, yeah. You can follow us at offscriptfilmreview.com and all the usual places. Uh, we're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook where we live stream our show every Tuesday. We're on YouTube. Big things happening on the YouTube channel. Got to go check out the YouTube channel. Seriously, I've been talking about it for weeks. You got to go see what's up over there. Big things going on. Uh, we are available in all the usual podcast outlets, right? Uh, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartMedia, Google Play. Uh, you might even get us. To, you might even be able to get us to play on your Amazon devices. Uh, but if you want to reach out to us directly, you can re, you can email us. Oh, I'm losing it. You can email us and mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. You can check out our website offscriptfilmreview.com. Uh, and you should subscribe and leave a rating and review because those are important things to do too. Boy, I took that that week off last week and I've lost it. Uh, I'm gonna wrap it up. Uh, from all of us at Offscript, the home of bold cinema. I'm Zach Lewis and I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for watching.